Hello and welcome to the Veterinary Secrets Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Jones and this is episode 48. In today's episode, I'm going to talk about what you can do for your vomiting dog or cat and what you need to know about a specific condition called megaesophagus. I'm going to explain what laryngeal paralysis is and then talk about a surprising natural mosquito repellent that may help with malaria and heartworm prevention. Now Veterinary Secrets is on iTunes. You can go to iTunes and search for Veterinary Secrets. We're also on Stitcher and Podbean. I would sure appreciate it if you would subscribe to my podcast and leave a review. You can do so on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean. And lastly, if you've yet to do so, I encourage you to get a copy of my free book and three free videos. It's at veterinarysecrets.com slash news. Now let's get right into today's podcast. Vomiting. What are some of the signs? Your pet is throwing up food and water. He or she may be throwing up bile on an empty stomach. You might not witness a vomiting, but find evidence on the floor. The first sign in many pets is nausea, drooling, increased licking and swallowing, followed by the vomiting with retching and contractions of the stomach. Additional signs include abdominal pain, decreased appetite, weakness, and lethargy. Often the vomited contents are frothy, dark yellowish, tinged bile, and occasional effects of blood. There's an indication that the stomach is irritated, called gastritis, secondary to something your pet is reacted to, such as garbage, a plant, or veterinary medication. Vomiting can be chronic, such as your cat, which throws up hairballs once a week, or acute and occurring every few hours. In general, the sudden or acute vomiting is much more serious and warrants a veterinary visit if it persists for more than a few hours. So what are some of the causes? Well, the list is very large, although the most common cause is garbage gut or garbage gastritis. So what this means is your dog typically has eaten something he shouldn't have, resulting in the vomiting, you know, such as eating the compost. Other ca- causes include medications, parasites, food allergies, liver or kidney disease, pancreatitis, cancer, infectious causes such as parvovirus, metabolic disorders such as thyroid disease or diabetes. There can be physical obstructions, your dog has eaten a ball or a bone, and there can be primary motility disorders. And what this means is the stomach isn't contracting properly. Um, vomiting or regurgitation. This is an important clinical distinction that most clients are not even aware of. Vomiting is active. There is retching, gagging, and then your pet's body throws up the stomach contents. Regurgitation, on the other hand, is very passive. The food will sit in your pet's esophagus until it, pass- until it passively comes out at some time. Most pet owners think they're one and the same. But the most common cause of regurgitation in dogs is a condition called megaesophagus, or enlarged esophagus. Well, occasional vomiting can be normal. Frequent bouts of vomiting means your pet should be seen by your veterinarian. So what do you do first? What are some of the solutions? Well, the first thing is assessing the severity. You know, if your dog or cat is persistently vomiting and unable to retain even water, you want to wait no longer than 24 hours before you take him or her to your veterinarian. And this indicates a severe problem, such as an obstruction that needs to be treated with IV fluids and possible surgery. But if your dog or cat is still drinking and only intermittently vomiting, then you can consider trying some of these home remedies. Uh, The basis of it is called a fasting time. A 24-hour fast is more important than anything else that you can do to allow your pet's inflamed stomach to heal. Allow access to controlled amounts of water, but no food. After 24 hours, offer bland food, such as plain cooked white rice. Give equivalent amounts of rice as you do dog or cat. After 48 hours, mix your pet's regular food with the rice, and don't switch fully back to the regular food until after 72 hours. Offer ice. This may encourage drinking and some animals reluctant to drink. It's important that your dog or your cat really continues to drink to avoid dehydration. Offer small amounts of water. Drinking is important, but in moderation. You don't want your dog all of a sudden just to lap up this entire huge bowl of water and then throw up again. Give it in small amounts. Make sure he doesn't throw up. And then space that throughout the day. 
sub-Q fluids or subcutaneous fluids. The mainstay of treatment for vomiting is rehydration and not giving your pet anything orally that inflames the stomach so it's allowed to heal. In practice, I often send clients home with directions on how to give sub-Q fluid. This involves an IV fluid pack along with an 18 to 20 gauge needle. And the dose you're giving is 100 mils for 10 pounds twice daily to an average of pet. Your veterinarian can give you specific instructions on how to do this. And I also have a specific video on my YouTube channel. A cup of tea. Peppermint tea is an oral remedy used for upset stomachs and people. Brew up a strong cup of tea, but allow it to cool before offering it. Give your dog a quarter of a cup for 10 pounds of body weight three times daily. Give your cat one tablespoon three times a day. Pepto-Bismol. This is an old standby that can be effective for dogs. I don't recommend it for cats. The dog dose is one mil per 10 pounds of body weight given three times daily for no more than seven days. Food allergens. For dogs and cats with chronic vomiting, I strongly recommend a diet change. Preferably switch to a hypoallergenic food or a homemade allergy diet. At the very least, change to premium quality food. I find that some pets respond better to a more natural diet. Bach Rescue Remedy can make many pets feel a little bit better about their illness. Um, it's a good anti-anxiety one, and some, some dogs really respond to if they're vomiting. The dose you're giving is three to four drops by mouth every four to six hours. Acupressure. There's a specific point called the ST36 point. It's located on the outside of the hind leg below the knee, and it can be effective. Um, it, it seems to help for many of the stomach disorders. Um, so what you're doing is pressing it for one minute twice daily for three to five days, seeing it's going to be beneficial. Ginger. Yes, it's great for curry, but also it's very effective for vomiting. The dried herb dose is 25 milligrams per pound of body weight, or one drop per pound twice daily as a tincture. Ginger tea is another option where you just peel up you know, some of the ginger root, cut it into small pieces, boil it in two cups of water for 15 minutes, let it cool, giving your dog or cat one teaspoon for 10 pounds of body weight twice daily. Chamomile, it's commonly used in people with mild upset stomach and may help your pet. You're dosing it at 30 milligrams per pound of body weight of the dried herb or two drops per pound of the tincture three times daily. Homeopathics, there's a couple homeopathics that you should consider. One is arsenicum, it's the major remedy for garbage gut and food poisoning. The dose is one 30C capsule for 20 pounds of body weight every two hours for one to two days. Bismuth, it's also used when there is intense stomach pain. Once again, the dose is one 30C capsule for 10 to 20 pounds of body weight every two to three hours. Nux vomica is the last homeopathic I'd mentioned. And many clients have found it to be very effective for their vomiting dogs or cats. And once again, we're looking at similar doses, 130C capsule for 10 to 20 pounds of body weight, given once or twice daily for three to five days. I want to talk a little bit about mega-esophagus. So the majority of cases of mega-esophagus have no underlying cause, meaning they're idiopathic. In other words, we don't know what the cause is. Most dogs are large breeds between the ages of 6 to 12 years. Um, so what it is, is you've got this dilated esophagus, you know, the thing that, where the food is supposed to go through, and it's not working properly. So how can you help your dog if they have this condition? Most dogs definitely seem to do better if the food is moistened. Well, this, it, this isn't the case with all dogs. The important point here is to try with your own dog to see what works. Multiple feedings of three to four small meals a day are also important to aid with digestion of the food and, and help in decreasing the regurgitation. The single biggest change you can make is to elevating your dog's food, minimizing regurgitation. So you want to, what your attention were using gravity to help um, your dog for this food to go down its esophagus. For many dogs, a stepladder 
with three steps works well. Some clients will build up platforms and have their pet, you know, eat up. They've got to eat up on that platform. There's a specific type of chair called a Bailey chair, which helps your dog in an upright position for 15 minutes after eating, helping to move the food into the stomach and lessen, lessening the likelihood of regurgitation. And there's a couple different conventional medications specifically for megaesophagus you should be aware of. Uh, metoclopramide and cisapride. Metoclopramide may help prevent regurgitation by increasing the tone of the round muscle at the start of the stomach. It's called the cardiac signature. Cisapride is another conventional drug that seems to help the esophagus contract more normally. It may or may not be beneficial, but most veterinarians at least advise you attempt to try it with your dog for 7 to 14 days to see if it's helping. As it's no longer available at regular pharmacies, it can still be compounded by a compounding pharmacy. Now let's get into the second part of today's podcast about laryngeal paralysis. So most of you probably know what the larynx is. You know, it's that voice box that's located in our throat, in our pet's throat. Think about the condition called laryngitis. You got this inflamed larynx, it's difficult to speak. While our pets have larynxes, much the same thing. And you sort of think about it, that main thing, it's the so the last gate of the airway. It's trying to make sure that food goes in the right direction and it's not going to go down into your lungs, into your pet's airways, and move where it should. Laryngeal paralysis results when there's there's certain muscles on either sides of the larynx. They're not working properly. So what when you think about what's happening, when your dog or your cat or yourself, you take a breath, you breathe in, there's little nerves to that larynx and the, the larynx opens wide and allows the air to go into the main part of the airway, the trachea, down into your lungs. In laryngeal paralysis, that's not happening. And these nerves themselves are not working properly. So this larynx or that gate is just these two flaps are actually staying closed. A respiratory crisis from partial obstruction can happen, creating an emergency in real serious cases. It's something that doesn't come about suddenly. For most dogs, there's a very long history of panting, not easy, easily tiring on walks. They have this really loud, loud breathing. Ideally, the diagnosis should be made before you get into this serious respiratory crisis. So what are some of the signs that you should be aware of? I mean, I think about a dog who's got respiratory distress. He's got problems as far as exercise-wise. He pants a lot. There might be really loud, loud breathing sounds. You might see respiratory distress or even this sort of gasping, gasping for air. Typically, we're looking at an older, large breed dog. The most commonly affected breed is a Labrador Retriever. This this condition can occur in cats, but it's very, very rare. Um, Bouviers can also get laryngeal paralysis. So what happens? Is it part of a bigger, uh, certain neurologic problem? Well, good question. So in most cases, <coughs> most cases, most veterinarians consider idiopathic. In terms, of we don't know what, hap- what what the cause is. For some reason, those nerves just stop working, so that larynx doesn't doesn't pull apart when your dog takes a big breath when he tries to breathe in. It has been suggested there's a certain veterinary condition called hypothyroidism or low thyroid. It seems to be very common in our labs. And there's definitely an association with thyroid disease and laryngeal paralysis. So it's one of the big things is, is first of all, if we suspect the dog has laryngeal paralysis, you want to rule out something that's easily treated, such as the hypothyroidism. You want to make sure that you're aware of that, your veterinarian's aware of that, and they make that test. So how can you make the diagnosis of laryngeal paralysis? So first of all, the larynx needs to be examined under sedation, so meaning that your dog needs to be sedated, just enough, like lightly sedated. It has to be heavy enough so the larynx can be visualized, but not but not light enough for your patient to not be taking deep breath. You may use some mild sedation, enough that we can, we need to be open the mouth, look inside your, do- your dog's mouth, the openness fully, 
and then see him when he breathes in and breathes out. We want to see that larynx open fully wide. And if it's not, then we know he's got the diagnosis of laryngeal paralysis. And there's a number of pretty safe sedatives now that your veteran has access to, you know, specifically something like a, a low dose of ketamine, ketamine Valium, some type of Valium type sedative, regardless that your veteran can then use. And it, it's safe for your dog. And they're also going to have on hand, they're going to have an IV, a tube and a tracheal tube if needed, where they can put that trach tube on the throat, get your dog on oxygen while he comes out of the sedative. So they just need to be all sort of set up while they're sort of making that diagnosis. A little bit of word about respiratory crisis. So if it's not treated, your dog can get to the point where he just, something happened, especially if it's hot, he's been outside, he's been exercising, where he can't breathe, the larynx gets more swollen because he's just been gasping for air. And then you get to the point of, you can imagine, where it's completely constricted. You can't get any air in at all. So if that's the case, he needs to be seeing it in air. And as soon as possible, they've got, to, they've got to get a trach tube down into him, get him on oxygen, and treat him accordingly. So what are your options? First of all, you suspect this. Your dog's got some of those clinical signs. You see a in the room. They do a, sed they do a sedation. They make the diagnosis. So first of all, in mild cases, we can we're going to consider some of these natural options. Natural options I'm going to discuss. Serious ones, you're going to look at some form of surgery. They've got to go in. They've got to tie that. For instance, they're going to go surgical wise. It's referral surgery. They've got to tie that larynx back. It's probably the most commonly used form of surgery for laryngeal paralysis. It's called laryngeal tieback, and it's the one I had a number of clients go have done um, for their dogs in veterinary practice. And surprisingly, all of those clients that I saw, all the dogs I saw with laryngeal paralysis. They were lab retrievers. Fortunately, all did well with surgery. Um, I wanted to make a couple points, some holistic suggestions and options. First of all, make sure there's an accurate diagnosis. And secondly, make sure your veteran rules out uh, hypothyroidism as a cause. I find majority of these guys were overweight. We want to get their weight down as much as possible. Some other things to think about. First, consider some, some type of natural anti-inflammatory. Um, the thing I would, though I feel is most important is curcumin. So you're looking at the 95% curcuminoids and you're looking at doses of 100 milligrams per 10 pounds of body weight daily. You can get them in capsules. All the natural pharmacies have curcumin now. A great natural anti-inflammatory. Look at some type of anti-anxiety medication because what happens with these guys get really anxious. They get anxious to breathe. Like this, this whole inflammatory cycle going on. Let's decrease their anxiety. L-theanine is a great option. It's a it's isolated compound from green tea. We're looking at L-theanine doses of 100 milligrams per 10 pounds of body weight. Um, it's a pretty standard dose. A couple of other options to consider. One, a couple of like anti-cough um, holistic treatments. Because we also know that there is, there is this inflammation in this larynx, which is, you know, the gateway to your throat. So if we can naturally take down inflammation, great. So one option is honey. Um, or you can use honey combined with lemon. Uh, generally, I'm looking about a teaspoon of honey uh, per 10 pounds of body weight, 10 to 20 pounds of body weight. So you could just dilute that in, you know, lukewarm water, squirt that into your dog's mouth, have them swallow that. It's a, it's a great natural anti-inflammatory. It'll help to soothe that inflamed larynx. Another option is there's a herb called licorice or licorice tincture. It's one that I've, it's often used for these coughing dogs, but it's also another natural anti-inflammatory. You're looking at a uh, licorice tincture dose of about half a mil for 20 pounds of body weight once or twice daily. And lastly, there's a specific homeopathic that is used for laryngeal paralysis. It's used for inflammation and nerve paralysis. So, so that homeopathic is called causticum. And it would be causticum 30C. It'd be one 30C capsule for 20 pounds of body weight given twice daily. And you choose that for a month, assessing it if it's effective or not. Now let's get on to the last part of today's podcast, and it's an, it's a little bit of a different topic, but it's about a natural mosquito repellent. So the really interesting thing is it came up about what can we do about helping protect people against malaria. 
And the answer came up to be it's chickens. Yes, it might seem to be like an unlikely candidate to help for malaria prevention and help deal with mosquito prevention. But there's a new study suggesting that chickens eliminate, they emit odors that deter mosquitoes from feeding, feeding on them. And that's true, I've never seen a mosquito on a on a chicken. Really interesting. So then the, the authors of this study, specifically, they're looking at malaria. Because we've got, you know, worldwide, there's over 200 mi- million cases of malaria across, across the globe just last year. And almost 500,000 deaths from the disease. So it's a huge issue, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so the big point is, is there something we can do to decrease the risk of malaria? So current strategies to protect against malaria in high-risk areas include, include the use of insecticides, mosquito nets, but they're, I mean, it's difficult. Mosquitoes are really hard to keep to keep away. And so the issue became you've got this area, specifically sub-Saharan areas of Africa, um, where they have this huge rate of malaria. And, you know, they have, they need real inexpensive novel ways to control it. What they found is that significant fewer mosquitoes are found on traps laced with chicken odors. Hmm, interesting. So the specifics about the studies is the researchers actually had set up, you know, these little traps. And they're trying to... Um, trap the mosquitoes in the first place to get an idea for mosquito town. And their thought was is there are certain odors or certain things that mosquitoes are less drawn to or that repels them. So, so first of all, they, they notice, one, mosquitoes do not get bitten. Uh, chickens do not get bitten by mosquitoes. So there's something about chickens. So they actually tried different animals, a whole variety of different natural and non-natural scents or odors, and found the traps that were most, that captured the least number of mosquitoes were the ones that had, you know, these specific chicken odors. So the thought then has come, is there some way that we can isolate that compound and use that um, as an effective mosquito repellent? Quite possibly, which has huge implications, you know, when you look in the veterinary world. And more, more, most importantly, I'm thinking about just heartworm disease with our dogs, is that, you know, we have this huge issue around heartworm period, especially in the, you know, the all these like southern areas. We look at the whole southeastern United States, and we've got this increasing resistance to, to the conventional veterinary medications, you know, be it um, heart guard, et cetera, because suddenly these heartworms have started to figure out how to develop a certain amount of resistance. And we need to find some novel ways. How can we, like, sort of think outside the box, potentially stop this in the first place? So this is kind of interesting. And, you know, if stuff, if something comes out, out from with this as far as being used for people with malaria, no question we could draw the same parallel for our animals and preventing them from getting bitten by mosquitoes in the first place. And if that happens, I'll let you guys know. Well, thank you guys for listening to today's podcast. This is Dr. Jones. I've heard you, her, hope you've learned something helpful today. Um, either way, I'd love to hear from you. One, you can either send me any questions or comments, and that's a podcast at veterinarysecrets.com, or leave a comment um, under my blog, and that's at theinternetpetvet.com or veterinarysecrets.com forward slash blog. Once again, thanks for listening. I'll talk to you guys again next week. This is Dr. Jones.